Today's guest is Bobby Gibb. And I feel like Bobby doesn't even need an introduction because she's Bobby Gibb, a legend. But I guess she really does need an introduction because after spending time talking to her, I learned she is so much more than just the legendary runner. She is a doer, a dreamer, a mom, a go-getter, a creator, a medical professional, a lawyer, a lover of life, a person who lives every day to the fullest and who sees the beauty of life, who sees that life is a miracle. I felt like I had found a kindred spirit in Bobby. She has a thirst for knowledge that I love, and I am thankful that she was a pioneer for women in so many ways. Personally, I have reaped the benefits of Bobby's courage and the courage of other women like Bobby who paved the way for my generation to live the life we want to live and fulfill the goals we want to fulfill. So here is my conversation with my new friend, Bobby Gibb. Hey, I want to take a minute before you listen to this podcast interview and let you know that this show is sponsored by UCAN. I am a user of UCAN. I love their products, their super starch, and their energy bars. I have to say, over the last few weeks, <laughs> I've kind of been living off of the energy bars. They are so delicious and just a great uh, source of nutrients and for a quick breakfast before a long run, they've been wonderful. So I highly encourage you to check out UCAN's products. I have a link to their site in my show notes and also use code Inniskirt2020 for 15% off your order. I recommend buying a bundle if you've never purchased from UCAN before and buying a bundle so you get a little bit of everything to see what you like. Okay, here's my interview. So Thank you so much for letting me bug you today. I know you rearranged your schedule um, for this, and I'm so excited about it. Oh, it's so neat. No, I'm happy to talk with you. It's great. David has wonderful things to say about you. Oh, that's very and, nice uh, of him. He's I, getting, kind of into, are you recording this yet? Or are I'm, you, when, when, when yes. do you start? I'm recording it, but because I, I always hit record <laughs> as soon as it answers, but I edit things out like I you know, can cut the first few minutes out and everything. I just, it's an automatic recorder. It kind of, uh, it it kind of gives an interest. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious about this, um, in skirts, uh, uh, running in skirts thing. Um, is this an organization that you've created? No, I just, I'm, I'm a runner and I run in a skirt and kind of the, the backstory is, um, for a few years, like I, I never ran in public because because I I looked different <laughs> in my skirt, and then I just realized <laughs> that the running community today is very open and welcoming, and they don't care what you wear. <laughs> so, so I just decided to kind of take the in a skirt thing and and run with it, literally. That's <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I actually read something about that somewhere in the dim past about uh, or saw pictures or something and I can't remember exactly where but I remember when we used to play field hockey we had skirts I mean we played in skirts we didn't play in shorts yeah and so yeah yeah so it's it's uh, it, it, it actually your legs are a lot sweeter in some ways that way yeah it's and what's interesting now is it's it's such a good time to be a runner and even even a skirt runner because there are numerous companies who cater to women who run in skirts and make yeah. specialty skirts to run in and there's even a a pro runner out of um Israel and yeah. she's an orthodox um Jewish woman and so she she's a 232 marathoner I think Um, Yeah, and she runs in knee-length skirts and um, sleeves down to her elbows. Oh, my word. Yeah, so (laughs) interesting time to to be a runner. Yeah, it really is. So do you you go by Bobby or Roberta? Bobby, yeah, Bobby. No, Roberta sounds so formal. (laughs) I mean, my name is Roberta Louise. So, I mean, you know, and I love the way that... um, my Mexican friends say it, you know, Roberta. Yeah. Roberta. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's nice. Uh, now, Bobby is, uh, I mean, actually, when I was growing up, people called me Bobby Lou, 
because it was my my nana, my grandmother uh, thought of that. Bobby Lou is short for Roberta Louise. Mm-hmm. So everybody, um, my, my family and all my relatives and oldest friends all call me Bobby Lou. But the the Bobby it kind of got shortened to Bobby. Um, at some point, I don't know when people started calling me Bobby. Well, I knew you grew up. You grew up in the Boston area. Is that correct? Yeah, I grew up in Winchester. Winchester. Well, when I was very little, I lived in Watertown. Then we moved to Marblehead, and then Winchester. Winchester is about eight miles from Boston. So uh, yeah, pretty much, I grew up there in the snow. And are you down near Houston? I am close to Houston. I'm about well. I'm about 120 miles north of Houston. Right, right. In Texas terms, that's close. Yeah, that is. <laughs> that's, as large as the state is, that is close. Massachusetts terms, that would be very far. <laughs> right. One of my coworkers is from New Jersey, and so he's had to learn to rethink his um, views of distance. <laughs> It's the same in California. Like, oh, 500, it's only 500 miles. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we go see a movie? You know, <laughs> so it's like, whoa. So do you do you or, still um, go back and forth between California and yes, the Boston area? Yes, 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 yes. I usually come out here in the winter, but this year because of the COVID, I just stayed. I couldn't get back, and the marathon course was canceled, and even in the fall, I couldn't even get back, and even now it's shut down again. So, um, but it's a nice place to be shut down here in California near the university. I went to University of California. Uh, I graduated in 1969 uh, here in uh, in San Diego, University of San Diego, University of California. It is, uh, and so this is my old stomping grounds. I I lived out here for years. About half my adult life, I think, I've lived in this area near the university. I've been there once, and I could not get over how absolutely perfect the weather is in that area. Right. It is. It's amazing. But now, it's the, this is my favorite time of year. It's the rainy season. And this is when um, it really becomes spring here, and everything, the grass starts to grow, and the oxalis comes up. In fact, I'm out in the garden now looking at it rained poured last night the first time really poured since march i think i mean that's a long time for a new englander it's a a long time to go without rain because in new england we're used to lots of rain and snow yeah we don't get any snow here but in in the community i live in lovekin it's a very very rainy area so we're used to lots of rain year-round Right, that's good. You know, it makes things grow. So you're stuck Thank in you. California for <laughs> for who knows how long yeah. then? I'm not really stuck. Well, my son got a new job out here. He loves it. He's a neuroscientist. And uh, so uh, I'm happy to be out here with him. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better place to get back. I haven't spent too much time with him since he was a kid. I mean, he went away to school, and then he was working in a different town than I lived, and now suddenly here we are together, and I would say he's probably my best friend. Oh, So it's really fun when we have a great time. Of course, I do neuroscience, too. That's why I was up so late last night uh, working on uh, my neuroscience research, and I do... um, I researched the literature for a lab. It, actually, the, the lab is in Massachusetts. <clears throat> Dr. Brown, he's a fantastic. And we work on ALS. And I research the literature because, of course, the lab, you know, they're focused on whatever they're doing, and they don't have time to do um, research uh, all the literature of what everyone else in the field is doing. And so every month I read about 250 abstracts in some papers and then I do memos and synopsis and I send the best articles to the lab so they can they have a journal club and uh, they can see so they can see what what other uh, labs are doing keep in touch that way so and I, of course I learn a huge amount by doing this and um, 
So I, I've done neuroscience for a long time. And, of course, back in the 70s, I worked at MIT uh, in a lab with Jerry Letvin, who's a great, great neuroscientist. And um, there I was studying the visual system, the visual system, and, oh, my gosh, it's so fascinating. I mean, and so then, let's see, in, uh, well, when was it? In the late, I guess in the early... 2000s, one of my best friends came down with ALS, and um, I ran the marathon in, uh, yeah, I think it was 2001. Um, I was sick. I had bronchitis, but I'd been on uh, a lot of TV shows and talking about ALS and ALS research, so I had to run, I had to run, and I, I ran with bronchitis, which is probably stupid, but... And, but we raised about $100,000 for the lab. So after that, I was talking to Dr. Brown about this strange disease. It's a, it, a disease where the body becomes gradually paralyzed because the motor neurons in the, in the brain die, and nobody knows why. And so um, I, uh, I wrote him a tape along I did a lot of research. I mean, I read books on cell biology and molecular biology and everything, and I wrote him a long paper about some of my ideas about what what could cause the disease and what what needed to be done and what how we you know how we could approach it. And he liked it so much, he hired me. He said, "Whatever you're doing, he said, just keep doing it." <laughs> so that's why I was up so late last night was uh, I was trying to get this done for the lab because I had um, missed some time over, you know, the Christmas holidays. When I was, you know, we, we know Bobby Gibb as a running legend, but I had no idea until I, I, I started doing um, some online research about you for this podcast about the extent of your education and work history. There is so much more to you than your, you know, your running accolades. I was um, super impressed to read about all of that. So you've got an extensive medical background and legal background as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I I actually went to law school at night while I was working at MIT during the days. And I guess it was about a decade I worked with Jerry Letvin at MIT. And at night I did um, a law school. Um, Partly, it was very hard for women. It's hard to believe now. I mean, looking back, it was hard for women to get into the sciences in those days. And I applied for medical school. My my grades were really good, and I you know I did well. And I was told that I was too pretty. This is a quote: I, "You're too pretty to go to medical school. You'll upset the boys in the lab." Oh my goodness! And then, um, then followed by, "We have to save the places in medical school for." The men who are actually going to practice medicine, obviously, you're just going to get married and have children. And so that was the attitude. And um, when I was growing up, I grew up in the 50s, right? And, you know, in the 60s, things were starting to change. But um, there there was a a very, uh, I would say, strict limit on what women were allowed to do in those days. I mean, a a woman couldn't even have a credit card in her own name. She had to have her husband's permission to do things like that. It was very hard for a woman to get a mortgage on a house. I mean, it was just unbelievable compared to the way it is now. And so I grew up as an adolescent fuming at this. I mean, absolutely fuming. Like, I I can't live like this. You know, I'm going to go off into the wilderness and live with my dogs and my horses in a cabin. I can't. I can't live like this. I, and so uh, I was already um, sort of geared um, for, for this, uh, you know, not like, how am I going to change this? I can't, this is a world I can't live in. I've got to change this. So I was already thinking about that. And that part of the reason I went to law school was one, civil rights, because, of course, the 60s was a huge civil rights, civil rights for women, but also civil rights 
for uh, blacks and minority groups and, you know, try, trying to overcome prejudice. Mm-hmm. And so I went to law school. And the other reason I went to law school was environmental law. I did some work for the Sierra Club when I was in California in the early 70s. We were trying to save acres and acres of redwood trees, forests, these ancient groves. I mean, it's a religious experience to go in these groves. They're a thousand years old, two thousand years old. I mean, these huge, huge. I mean, it really. I mean, it takes your breath away. I mean, I almost felt like crying when I I get into these forests. It's it's so sublime, and they were going to cut them all down. And so I worked with the Sierra Club. And a friend of mine, Ollie Mayer, uh, who was a roommate of my mother's when she was in college, and we we I mean, no, hundreds of people were working on this. And uh, we, we managed to save acres and acres and acres in the South Peninsula, peninsula south of San Francisco, with these beautiful redwood trees. So I thought, well, if I, you know, if I had a law degree, I could really do more in these areas. And so I was taking, I was going to law school at night while I was working uh, at MIT in neuroscience. I've always been really curious about everything. I want to understand things. I don't want to just know things. I really want to understand things. My dad was a scientist. Did your did your mom um, work when you were growing up? No, it was very for a woman to work. Heavens, that would be a horrible insult to the to the man that he was supposed to be the breadwinner and to have a wife working. I mean. What's wrong with a guy who has a wife who has to go out and work? I mean, this is this was. I'm telling you, this is the way it was in in, in when I grew up in sort of the middle class society in America. And um, so she did graduate from college. She was one of the lucky ones um, in English lit, and she's quite a good writer. Um, and but no, she was a frustrated housewife. A beautiful, intelligent woman, and she was just so frustrated. And like so many women in those days, she was taking tranquilizers and, you know, sipping wine in the afternoon with all her lady friends. Um, to, to, I think to 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 kind of heal the pain of not living the life she wanted to live. She wanted to be a journalist. She wanted to travel the world and write stories about. You know, mm-hmm. about what she uh, and here she was a housewife. And of course, she loved her husband. She was in love with him. my dad. Was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. He could play the piano like a, like a concert pianist. He was a brilliant scientist and did a lot of important work. And so she was in love with him, and he was in love with her. I mean, she was a beautiful woman from a very uh, good family, and so. Um, but it was the social stereotypes. And so that's, I mean, that's been one of my things for all these years. Like, can we please stop trying to fit ourselves and each other into these stupid limiting stereotypes? I mean, if a man wants to knit doilies and a woman wants to drive a truck, they ought to be able to. I mean, this is democracy. You're supposed yeah. to be able to be, and that's. You know, that's that's so true, and, and that's a that's very interesting. You even use that example because I have a niece who's sixteen, and she's commented to her parents. She said, "I, I think I may want to be a truck driver when I grow up because I, I think I, it would be a good job <laughs> to have." It's fantastic. You know, I, there's, uh, where I live in Rockport, in the, in, during the summer, I um, it was this huge, huge, I mean, gigantic dump truck going down one of the very extreme narrow streets in Rockport near the water. And it was this adorable, petite, little woman, I mean, with so much gumption and spirit. And she kind of, she wasn't driving the thing. And so she's driving and she she gets up into the cab and she drives it and she pulls the lever and the the dump truck thing goes up and, you know, and she gets out again. <laughs> and now she's just having a ball and so sure of herself. And I said, yes, that's <laughs> it. She, you know, she's doing what she loves. She loves this thing. That's and, amazing. Uh, so when you, you would never, never have seen that in the 50s. Or the oh, 60s. no. Oh, no. Yeah, you just wouldn't. It's like pride and prejudice in those days. 
So when you, what year did you start? What years were you in law school? Well, let me see. I think I, I graduated in 78. I took a, a year off to have a baby. So I think I must have started in 72 or 73. Uh, it was night law school, so it took five, four or five years. I don't remember, maybe four or five years to go through at night. This is so interesting to me that, that you did that because um, I'm a lawyer and I went to law school. Yeah. I went to law school. I started law school in 2005. And for the first year and a half, I went at night <laughs> because I was working full time and I had I had a baby after my first year in law school. But I'm thinking our experiences were probably very different. So law school in the 70s, were there a lot of women in your law school class? No, no, it was all men. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah, yeah, and 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 even even when you you go, uh, say you go into court or you you go into the law library, there'd be a men's restroom or a place for men to gather. No, like nothing much for women there. So yeah, so that's that's great. I I knew you were a lawyer. I was going to ask you about that. What what sort of practice did you do? Did you? Uh, have a solo practice or work with a firm or what? No, I work with a firm. We have a, a pretty good mid-sized firm in, in Lovekin, and we just we do any type of civil um, law, and I mainly do, like, real estate, natural resources, um, contracts, you know, set up businesses right. for people. I mainly just write a lot of contracts. My, my kids think that I am the most boring <laughs> lawyer ever. <laughs> No. So, and then no, I have a small practice too, where I, a small part of my practice too is uh, representing children in the foster care system. Um, oh wow! So it's it's a small town, so you have to do a lot of different things to to keep afloat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would, you know, hats off to you. That's fantastic. And then raising a kid in the middle of it, I know how that is. Yeah, my first kid was two years old by the time I graduated from law school. So I remember thinking, I just can't wait to be able to have a job, one job, and not have to work, go to school, right. and, you know, <laughs> be so far away from my kid all the time. Yeah, I actually took my kid with me um, in my work at MIT. Um, it was a, a, Jerry Levin was just the most amazing, wonderful, warm, friendly guy. I just love him and his wife Maggie. They were a wonderful couple, and I spent a lot of time with them. And um, his office at MIT was a basically a huge, huge table covered with books and papers and everything falling onto the floor. And I and I tried to put my son's car seat. My son would be asleep. You know, he's just a baby. He'd sleep there peacefully in his car seat, and um, and then he'd crawl around the lab, and you know he was just there. All the, he he was there. Everybody adopted him. He was sort of the the mascot of the lab. <laughs> That's but when I when I had my my second son, I had him in. Um, 09. So I graduated from law school in 08 and came to work for yeah. this firm. And they were so pro women. They've been amazing that I, I brought him to work with me for three months because all he did was sleep. Uh, they, you know, all they do is sleep. And yeah, that's, that's yeah. exactly what they would call him. They would call him the firm mascot. <laughs> so it was a wonderful <laughs> environment. I just, I had a pack and play set up in my office and I would bring him and you know, and he would just sleep, and everybody took turns changing diapers here. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's but great. I was thinking this morning, I was thinking, wow, there are so many, so many aspects that I hadn't put together. You know, I, I'm a runner now, and I can, I was thinking, I can, I can easily go sign up for a marathon. And I went to, right. when I went to law school, most of the students in law school when I was there, most of them were female, um, probably like close to two thirds were female. And I started thinking, I was like, I can do these things now because of people like you. Yeah, I mean, it was a tough struggle. And, wasn't, you know, a lot of us were working on it. And, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. When I wrote for my application, I had trained for two years for the marathon. 
um, I started. I saw. I first saw the marathon in 1964, and I, I love to run. I've always loved to run. I was running in the woods with the neighborhood dogs, and I saw this, and I said, "Oh, here are people who feel the way I feel about life." And I mean, I was moved looking at the marathon. It was like to me, it was like life. It was you know, at the beginning of the race, you you know, you're young, you're vigorous, you're born, and then you run your race. And you're with other people, but no one can run the race for you. You're doing it on your own with other people. And then finally you get to the end and you're exhausted and, you know, you're tired and you're old. <laughs> and then the race ends. And then everybody goes home and the whole thing disappears. And I'm thinking, this is so moving. This is so, sort of a paradigm of life. Life and also sort of the evolution of life, of, of, life, of human beings and standing up on their hind legs and running across the plains of Central Africa. It's like, this is so fundamentally human, this, this thing of long-distance running. And, and, um, and, and it, it, to me, I was, you know, I grew up in these suburbs, with, with the, you know, and I was looking for something deep, something more authentic, something real. And I go into the woods, and in the woods I would find something in nature it was so real and so honest and so beautiful and so miraculous and amazing. And, uh, you know, in fact, that everywhere, you know, it was miraculous and, and amazing. And I was just in awe of it all. And I would run and run and run. And I saw these other runners. I thought, wow, they feel the same way I do about what it is to be human. I mean, the endurance and the courage it takes to run like that. And, and I just, something inside me fell in love with it. It was like falling in love. It was totally irrational. And there was no money. There was no nothing. And I trained for two years. I had no coach, no idea how to train. I was training in nurse's shoes. I trained by going across the country in a VW van with my Malamu puppy, running into different places. I was in love with this country, in love with the people, in love with the earth and the, you know, the universe. And at night, I slept out under the stars. I mean, this is the way I was training for the marathon, but it was also a spiritual journey, like, for me. Like, what? Why? Like, I can remember, even as a kid, as a very small kid, like, this total sense of wonder and awe. Like, you look out, you're born, and you look out and you think, wow, look at this world. This is amazing. This is a gas. Being alive is such a gas. And uh, why is it here? What's it doing here? What? Why not one void? Why bother with all this? And this, this thing has been in my mind my whole life. Like, this is amazing. This is miraculous. This is so incredible that there are all these atoms and molecules and, and trees and plants and planets and galaxies and universes. And, you know, why bother with this? And how could this possibly get to be? This is... This is amazing. I mean, can you imagine what it takes just to make one atom? One atom, and like there's uncountable numbers of atoms and light, light, light rays and photons. And so, so, of course, I was interested in science, and I studied science and all this stuff. And uh, running was part of it. I mean, running, when I was running, I kind of feel this creative force of the universe flowing through me, this energy of the universe, like... We're part of this thing. You know, we're part of this thing. It's so amazing. And to me, it was coming out of this huge, vast, incomprehensibly large love that I just felt everywhere. I felt it around me. I felt, felt it in. I still do. I feel it right now. It's still here. It's around me. It's around you. It's around everything. And this whole incredible existence is, is like being born out of this this love and and so this it's it's a sense of joy and so I just wanted to run I wanted to run with these men and then um, and I set out training and you know as I say I went across the country at night I slept out under the stars I fall asleep looking up at the stars at night and feeling like wow I mean we know we're on the planet but to really feel it is amazing you. <laughs> You feel, you can feel it. You, you look out at the sun and you say, that is a star in a galaxy. You know, we're going around this thing. We're on this little planet, you know, and, and we all, we take it for granted. And I, one of my big missions in life is 
that I'm always trying to change people's consciousness because I think that is the first key. The first key is you've got to change people's consciousness. Like, and people's consciousness change, then two or three people, then ten, then a hundred, and a thousand. Pretty soon it's a social movement, whether it's running or the women's movement or you know, whatever it is. At some point, someone in history, after thousands of years of slavery, looked at a slave market and said, this is wrong. This is wrong. And then the next person said, you're right, this is wrong, this is wrong. Pretty soon, it was a movement like, this is completely outrageous. You, you, you don't treat other human beings like this. And then out of this is born the anti-slave movement, and then the whole thing, and the, and the whole idea of uh, colonizing something or someone or someplace became wrong. And so, I, as we gain consciousness, you know, there's always got to be that first glimmer, that first change, like thinking, somebody who thinks outside the box, someone who says, this is, this is different. And at the time, they're looked on as being very weird and different and even threatening. But later, it catches on, it becomes a social movement, and gradually, 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 the consciousness of the human race is raised a little bit at a time, and there's always a backlash, and then it moves forward, and then there's a backlash, and then it moves forward again. So that's, you know, and so I've always felt, if I can just get people to see this incredible, could understand, don't take this for granted, folks. This is amazing. This is miraculous. I mean, you want to see a miracle, look at a grapevine. A grapevine takes a little water, a few elements from the soil, and the sun and it makes a grape. I mean, you know, we take yeah. it for granted. We, you know, we eat grapes. I say, folks, this is a miracle. It makes a grape, you know. And so, um, I'm just uh, so that the running was part of it. It was only part of it. And then all this other stuff is part of it too. Like, how do we see the human consciousness? Why? How are we conscious? There's a bunch of nerves up in our brain. Here I study neuroscience, so I'm so fascinated. There's a bunch of nerves. This thing looks this pinkish-gray glob in, under your skull. How on earth does that create within itself blue sky, green grass, trees, people? You know, it's amazing. It, it, this cannot be just a totally materialistic, mindless world of, if, we, if, if there's consciousness. And we know there's consciousness because... Consciousness is the only thing we're conscious of. <laughs> you know? So was, was the goal of when, when, when you finally decided, you know, you, you're running, you're training, and, you know, you were, you were fighting against this completely baseless but very prevailing idea, you know, when you talk about, about movements and people understanding that, that things aren't the way they've always believed – you were fighting against this really, really prevailing idea of the time that women's bodies were just not capable of running long distances. Right, right. And not only that, but women didn't have minds, really. They were kind of stupid, fluffy, emotional creatures that, you know, were good for sex and raising babies. Right. And maybe could keep up, but they didn't have minds. They couldn't really think. Uh, certainly, you could not do philosophy or mathematics or physics, my God. Uh, and, um, but also they were weak, the weaker sex, weak minds, weak bodies, sort of, you know, not to be taken seriously. And, uh, and this was really irritating, uh, not only the weak body, but also the idea that women can't think yeah. is, is just incredible to me. And, yeah. And I've, so I've, I've done a lot of reading on that recently and it, it, it's almost comical now, you know, knowing what we know now. But I mean, it was just a huge belief that because yeah. because we could bear babies and because we had a a biology that was set up to bear babies, that made us mentally weak. Which which is funny because <laughs> I think it's the exact opposite. <laughs> it's what one of the things that makes us so strong. Yeah. Exactly. And if you've ever had a baby, you know, I mean, I remember I had natural childbirth. My kid was actually born on the way to the hospital in the back of a camper. 
Oh my yes, and, uh, and I said to well, the people who are with me, I had, a, I had a friend who was a doctor with me and a lot of people, and they said, they give medals for running marathons, <laughs> and this is what women have been doing for thousands of years. <laughs> you know, totally un, you know, unsung, un, unrewarded, no medals, you know, back alleys and closets and, you know, bedrooms. And stuff. This is what women have been doing, and, and, and you know, it's just like... It just blew me away. It just, you know, so you're right. I mean, that's exactly, so I, that's exactly right. And I think I read somewhere that you, you actually attempted to register for the 1966 race, yes, but, but that yes, was the answer you got back. That's right. I wrote, I trained for two years. I was running 40 miles at a stretch at that point, And um, I had run 65 miles of the Woodstock 100 mile horseback ride it's a three-day horseback ride and i thought well i'm ready to run boston i was in california i'd come out to san diego i actually was um, married to a um navy man um in those days the vietnam war was going on and he had joined the navy uh because he was about to be drafted so he figured he'd have a better chance of surviving on a boat and so he joined the navy and he was out here and uh, I came out here, we got married, so um, I, I did my last bit of training here in San Diego, and um, I wrote for my application sometime before the race, I know, February, March, and to get a number, and they wrote back and said, women are not physiologically able to run marathons, we can't take the medical liability, and furthermore, it's a men's division race. And, of course, one of the fundamental rules of sports, he, he didn't write this in a letter, but is that women are not qualified to run in men's division races any more than men are not qualified to run in women's division races. That's fundamental. Everybody knows that. It's part of the AAU rules. And um, so he said, and furthermore, women are not, uh, allowed to compete in races over a mile and a half. That's the longest race that AAU, um, you know, would would uh, sanction in those days. So that was it. So I get this letter back, and here it was again. Because you belong to a certain class of persons, a certain group of persons, you're not allowed to do something. Here it is, prejudice. This is the whole thing of prejudice. If you're not allowed to do something, how can you even know you can do it? Right. You know? And so when women didn't even know they could do these things because they were taught from infancy that A, it was unladylike, and B, they weren't able to do these things. And so they weren't allowed to try. And so it wouldn't. The only reason I was, is because I was so far outside of the athletic world, I didn't know any of this. I didn't even know what the AAU was. I didn't <clears> even know what the BAA was, you know, the Boston Athletic Association, the amateur athletic unit. I didn't know that. And so I was just following my heart. I was doing what I loved, even though it was way, way, way outside the social norms of the day. I mean, why I would follow my heart and do this thing. Now I look back at myself as a young person. I said, wow, that was amazing. You followed your heart, even though, uh, even though it was totally against all the all the social prescriptions right. of the day, and so it's sort of like Joseph Campbell. If you've ever heard him, "Follow your bliss," and I said, "Wow, I just did that naturally. I just, you know, I just did it. I was, I, re- I did it all myself. I didn't have any." Uh, right. So, how did you? How did that decision come up? Like, okay, they said I can't do it. I'm going to go across the country and do it anyway. How did that plan well, develop? Yeah. Well, I read this letter, and you know, and here's the same fury, the same anger that you know that I've had all those years, but also the sense of sadness. Like, God, I mean, this is you can't get out of this. This is a trap. Like you're in this little box, and then I and so I just I crumpled up the letter. I threw it across the floor, and I started to run. And I ran, and I ran, and ran, ran, ran. I ran all the way up to Del Mar. I don't know how many miles it is. Uh, I don't know, from San Diego to Delma, uh, I don't know. Anyway, 10, say 10 miles or so. I ran up there, and that night, I actually spent on the beach. I just lay down on the sand, 
because I love sleeping outside anyway. This wasn't new for me. I sleep outside. I was sleeping outside for a whole year. I slept outside just to feel the earth and all its seasons. So here I am lying on the sand, and then I wake up and I say, I have to run the marathon. And because I saw a chink in the army, I said, if I can prove this misconception about women wrong, it's going to throw into doubt all the other uh, you know, misconceptions about women that have been used as justification for keeping women down for centuries, basically, for centuries. And so I saw this as a way to start to change the consciousness of people around women. And it was, at that time, the only way I, I had at the time. And so I said, this, I could do this. And um, so then I realized that it was going to not just my own, my own challenge and my own pleasure of being part of this, but it was going to be a social statement. And that, and I, I took the, a couple of days before the race, I took a bus back from San Diego and I arrived the day, I think it was the day before the race I arrived. I mean, I can imagine going across the country now and even being able to walk after three right, days on the bus. Right, exactly. But, you, know, <laughs> you got out and ran 26 miles the I next day. Out. Well, yeah. I called my parents from the bus station. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Where, well, you know, my mom with a worried voice, where are you, dear? Boston. What are you doing here? Oh, I've come to run the Boston Marathon. Well, they thought I had got, that I had really gone around the bend. My dad thought I was delusional, like... <laughs> You know, yeah, so, and so, uh, anyway, they came and picked me up and took me home. My mother baked a big apple pie and roast beef and everything, but they were really worried about me. My dad was, you know, he was, he just didn't want me to run. He, you know, banged out of the house the next morning. And, I don't want you to run this race. Uh, you know, you could kill yourself, you know. And then, but I convinced my mother. And my mother had spent her entire adult life trying to get me to conform to the same deadening social norms that had made her life so miserable. And I was always rebelling, you know, and she she was always trying to get, you know, she was a disciplinarian, always very hard on me and always thinking, oh, my poor insane daughter, what am I going to do with her? You know, she's not, she's not dressing up in dresses and running around in little patent leathers. She's out with the dogs running in the woods and and so um finally finally i said mom don't you see this is going to help to set women free and then uh, suddenly she got it she got it i mean she like tears came to her eyes her lips started to quiver and she said i'll drive you to the start and that is the first time in her life that she was on my side and she said i'm going to help you do this and so we drove out together and we hugged it, you know, she let me off to the outskirts of hockey and got out of the car. We hugged for the first time in years, decades. We we actually hugged, and I felt, ah, finally my mother is on my side. And um, she let me off, and then... Uh, uh, and you hit it, huh? <laughs> well, here's the problem. It was a catch-22, because how can you prove you can do something if you're not allowed to do it? So I wasn't allowed to run that race. And and I thought I was might get arrested. I didn't know what I was getting to. I was all alone. And, uh, and so I had a, my blank, my tank top bathing suit and I had a blue hooded sweatshirt. I think you all already know, because this, yes. this is part of the story that's really well known. And so, and your brother's I, Bermuda shorts. <laughs> Yes, and I went running around town, and then I went out in an alleyway, and I ran for about 40 minutes. I thought you had to warm up, and of course, I was, after being on that bus, I thought mm-hmm. it was probably a good idea, so I warmed up for about 45 minutes, running back and forth. I probably ran three, maybe three or four miles before the race even started. Then I came back to find some bushes, and, and I thought, well, I'm going to jump in and see what happens, and... Um, that's what I did. And then the starting gun went off, and I waited about half the pack, jumped in, and then I jumped in, and, of course, the guys quickly realized I was a woman, and then when I took, I, and they were friendly, and 
This is what people don't realize. And it's just part of what I was trying to do. End the stupid war between the sex sexes. Like, for heaven's sakes, we can share life. I mean, you know, men can take care of babies. Women can be heads of corporations. We can both run together. We can... You know, we can we can be full human beings. We don't have to be half human beings anymore. We can be totally who are, who we are and share that with each other and be friends. And so uh, they were so supportive. And you know, when I took my uh, my hood off, I said, "Afraid they're going to throw me out because if they see I'm a woman." And they said, "We won't let them throw you out." They were supportive and they were wonderful. And we ran along talking, and, you know, the guy would say, I wish my wife would run, or my girlfriend, something. They liked having me there. And, and you beat two-thirds of them, didn't you? <laughs> didn't you finish ahead of most of them? I, I, yeah, I wasn't thinking about beating them. I was thinking about running with them, you know. And I, I, um, I actually, we were on a sub-three-hour marathon for most of the race. Um, the problem was the last few miles I had got new boys size running shoes just before I left, literally, um, as I was waiting for the bus in San Diego, uh, boys running shoes. Cause one of my friends out there had said, you can't run in those heavy nurses shoes. You got to have running shoes. So I bought boys running shoes. Well, I didn't break them in and they gave me horrible blisters. So by the, uh, you know, it was getting the blisters were getting worse and worse and worse. And by the last few miles, they were worn through, and they're bleeding blisters. Oh, my feet were killing me. And I just, I mean, I, I was just tiptoeing along. I, I, it was excruciating pain. <clears throat> and um, I didn't take aspirin. I didn't know, you know, runners do that. And I didn't know it would hurt. So, and I also didn't know you're supposed to drink water along the way. No, nobody told me. And high school they said if you drink water while you're exercising you're going to get cramps so i didn't drink any water so i was probably a bit dehydrated because it was a hot day in 1966 and and so my pace dropped off so i was actually disappointed <laughs> that i finished it three hours and 20 minutes you know i most of that 20 minutes was spun out over the last probably three, four miles of this excruciating pain and me tiptoeing along. And so, yeah, and I got to the finish and the, the press was all there. They knew I was coming because I forgot to say in Wellesley, when I went through Wellesley, the women there were looking for me. It was being broadcast on the radio, my progress. And um, Diana Chapman Walsh, who was then, uh, who was then a student there and later became the president of Wellesley in 1996, I met her, um, and uh, and she wrote a wonderful piece for the paper. And she said we were looking for her. No, we were looking, looking. We we're waiting and waiting. We were just, and then finally they knew exactly where I was because the radio. And then I came into view, and they all cheered, cheered and screamed. And in those days, you go through the speech tunnel, which you know the, the women line up. Two parallel lines with their hands uh, touching, like making like a arch or a hallway. You run through, and the guys are going, "Oh, this is the best part of the race. This is the best part of the race." And I get there, and they're all screeching and yelling and yay. And one woman over the side with a whole bunch of children around her, she's going, "Ave Maria, Ave Maria," you know. And at that moment, I had the feeling like the world is never going to be the same. Like. These people really get it. Yeah. This is something, you know, this this is like a pivotal event. This is going to change people's consciousness. One by one, you know, 10 people, then 100 people, then 1,000, then 10,000. And then it's a movement, running, the running movement and the women's movement. And it was just the very beginning of those two movements. And then I get to the finish. The governor of Massachusetts comes down and shakes my hand. The next day, it's front page headlines. Pub, pub bride, first gal to run marathon, and um, you know the reporters. And I never met a reporter before. I was just I thought, oh, a reporter! Wow, that's fantastic. That's amazing. You know, I was so impressed with them. And um, they, so you know, 
it was really nice. It, and people, they, they really kind of got, uh, they understood what I was trying to do in an upbeat, non-threatening way that kind of, and, and the, there was actually a spokesperson from the AAU who was, uh, went on record saying that he was going to try to get the rules changed so women could run. That was in 1966. So it was all very positive, very upbeat. It was a great celebration of spring and life and men and women together. And so why do you, why did so, it take so, why did it still take another six years, do you think, for them to actually change that? Well, um, part of it was um, the next year there was a woman who ran. She had gotten, um, uh, she had gotten a, a number, an, an illegal or invalid number by uh, disguising her gender on the um, application form and also on her medical records and also, uh, I guess, you didn't take or had someone else take the pre-race physical for her and got this illegal number, which is all very well and good. But uh, she said she didn't know. She didn't know. She'd, she'd read about me the year before, and she just naturally thought that women could run the race. And But the problem was that if there's a non-qualified runner in the race, the race could lose its accreditation. And then all the running times of the legitimate runners would be negated. And so there was this huge backlash by the officials and by the other runners um, against this, because A, Jock Semple, who was the one who was trying to take the number off her, um, this was his baby. He, he dedicated his life to the Boston Marathon, and here it could lose its accreditation because uh, this, he called it subterfuge, you know, that because, uh, because of this unqualified runner. And there was a huge backlash against that. And at that point, they actually, instead of opening it to women, they closed it down and specifically said women are not allowed. And so it took, uh, because it was a men's division race, so it took a long time before uh, the AAU. And the AAU, Amateur Athletic Union, they're the ones that control the rules of road racing. Um, agreed to to create and to sanction a women's division marathon. And um, what happened was just what, what I wanted to happen. I came back that second year and I ran. I finished about an hour ahead of that other woman that I was talking about. And then the next year I came back again and there were five women running. And again, I finished first. Among that, and then the next year I didn't come back because I was applying to medical school and and uh, graduating and so forth and so forth. So I had other things that I was doing, but there were more and more women running. And then in 1972, Nina Kusick, and she doesn't get enough credit for this. She was she was the mover and shaker behind this whole thing. She was down in New York. I think she was maybe with the Roadrunners down there. She understood the mechanics of this thing, and she was the one who brought, actually, brought the petition to the AAU, um, uh, asking them to to accredit or sanction credit accredit women's marathon distances. And thank goodness they did. They they voted to um, to accredit women's marathons. And so, at that point, uh, women marathons were officially accredited by the AAU. Before that, there were still women running marathons, more and more women running marathons, but it was what's now called the pre-sanctioned era. Right. Era. And the um, Boston Athletic Association calls it the Pioneer Division. And, of course, Sarah Mae Berman was the winner in 1969 and 1970 and 71. She's a dear, dear friend of mine. I just love her. She's a sweetheart. And um, so she won those three years. And then that's, so that's it. And Nina Kustik, of course, won in 1972. But it still took, a, well, it still took a whole other decade to get it to the Olympics, though, didn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, that, um, I think there were, 
there was a lot of push for that. And partly it was came from the Avon Cosmetics Company, who and they had a policy of helping women, and especially helping women um, in athletics. And they wanted, a, they had a stated goal of a woman's uh, uh, Olympic marathon. And, of course, they used this as a way to sell cosmetics. So it, it, at that point, it was becoming a commercial, a commercial venture. It wasn't just like I was running it out of love and, you no, know, there was no prize money or anything. There was nothing. It was just, it was, you know, it was just uh, those of us who love to run. And now it was becoming a commercial thing. And at that point, they hired Kathy Switzer, who was that second woman, the second woman to run the Boston Marathon that I mentioned. They hired her to organize um, the races for um, for their their running circuit. And um, she uh, and um, I, there's also a man that worked with her, whose name uh, never gets mentioned. <laughs> and I forget, but so the Avon Cosmetics Company put their muscle behind um, the whole idea of a women's Olympic marathon, and um, and finally, uh, and and Sister did have uh, quite a bit to do with that, and I give her credit for that. I think that was wonderful that she did. She found her calling, which was um, PR public relations, uh, media, and organizing women's races. And um, so I think that's great. She was not the first woman to run the Boston Marathon, and she was not ever a winner of the Boston Marathon. But later on, she kind of found her side, and she did this. And I don't know the full story of the Avon thing, why she left or why it ended, um, but... I do know that um, listening to her, uh, she does promote herself uh, very clearly as being uh, one of the uh, one of the people who helped to get women's running into the Olympics. But she wasn't the only one by by a long shot. There were dozens and hundreds of women who were working who who didn't have access to the press and who weren't promoting themselves and whose names have are being forgotten. And uh, I think this is a shame because this gets to one of my favorite themes, which is people, ordinary people are extraordinary. And and we're all doing, everyone is doing their part in making this a better world, making this a wonderful world. And and usually without credit. And usually don't they don't get the credit of publicity. And like Nina Kusick, she was the one who was actually doing the work of getting uh, getting the acceptance by the AAU. So there were hundreds of women, and I'm actually working. The actual woman who who set up the first women's Olympic trials in Olympia, Washington, was named Laurel James. And nobody ever heard of Laurel James. She's not out there promoting herself. She's not in the media. She doesn't, you know... She's a, no. She she's brilliant. She's brilliant. She's a businesswoman. She started a, a store called the Super Jock and Jill long, long before anyone else had running stores. Hers might have been the first. And um, so she she knows a lot of this history. And she and I have been working together. I was just talking with her the other day. So she got the uh, the commission, I guess you'd say, from the Olympic. Uh, organizing commission to to actually uh, organize the first woman Olympic trials, and we were all invited out there, all us early pioneers, and they commissioned me to do a, three sculptures for the first, second, and third place for that race. And so I went out there, and of course, you know, Joan Joan Benoit was out there, and I mean, all the women pioneer. It was great. It was sort of like a college dorm, you know. Like, I bet that was so like cool. A, <laughs> just just thinking of everybody who would have been there. Oh, it was so cool. It was so cool. And um, and so we're talking about having a reunion of these people, maybe by Zoom. And 
I want to get these people's names and their yes. histories. And, and no, after we're, after we had a meeting afterwards, and these these people, these women, these incredible women, stood up, and they, you know, Doris Heritage, she's one name that comes to mind, and they told their stories of, you know, their lives, and it was so incredible listening to these women. They are all extraordinary women, ordinary women you never hear of, and this is. This is what I'm saying, that this country, the world, is full of people who are doing amazing things. Right now, it's the front-line front workers in the hospitals. It's the people who are delivering the groceries. It's the people who are picking the vegetables. It's the, you know, it, these people are working to make our country and to make the world work, and they never get credit. Nobody knows their names. They're not out there promoting themselves. They're not, they don't have a degree in public relations, you know. And, but they're the ones that are really doing the work behind the scenes, quietly. And, um, and so my sense of, wow, we need to honor these people. We need to honor people. We need to honor these extraordinary people. I don't think there's one ordinary person anywhere. That People are extraordinary in the things that people are doing. I mean, I'm, I'm here now. I mean, I see these people, scientists working night and day in the labs to find cures for cancer and neurodegenerative diseases and, and you know, people working to house the homeless and uh, people working. I have a good friend recently passed away, and she devoted her life to helping victims of sexual abuse. You can imagine the pushback she got from the worst criminal syndicates in the world against her. And she persisted. Nobody knows her name, Dana Raphael. Nobody knows her name. She's not out there promoting herself. And yet she's doing something that is so beautiful and so courageous and so necessary. And I mean, the world is filled with these people, people who are trying to save the ocean, people who are working to save air. I mean, I worked with a group for years that were trying to, back in the 70s, to get the Clean Air Act passed, to get the Clean Water Act passed. You know, hundreds and thousands of people working on this stuff. I mean, even to get Title IX passed. And um, this Birch Bay, uh, Bi- and I don't know how to pronounce it, B-A-Y-H, from Indiana. He sponsored the bill in the Senate. And... Um, this is so important for every every female. <laughs> I mean, to to know because because I I'm thinking about my life and I've 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 had a very a very good life and I've never had pushback against me. But in anything I've right. ever wanted to do, but but women my age and younger need to know the history behind that Title Nine. Right. I mean, any of this right. is we get to do these things so easily because just one generation before us had to be brave enough right. to fight that fight. Right. And, and, and I want to do something to give these women credit. Patsy Mink, she's from Hawaii. She was a representative of the U.S. Congress from Hawaii. She, she drafted the bill, and then there was another woman, um, Elaine, I want to say Elaine, but I don't think uh, that was right. Green was her last name. Um, Edith. uh, Was it Edith? I think it was Edith Green. Anyway, she was from Oregon, uh, a a representative. So she helped to draft it. And then, but there were men working on this. It wasn't just women against men. And that's one thing I want to keep emphasizing to the women's movement. You don't have to be against men. Men are wonderful. Right. My best friends are men. My father was a man. My brother was a man. My son is a man. They are beautiful people. They are loving, kind, devoted people who are doing good things for humanity. You cannot be against men. I mean, then you're doing the same thing to men as you claim that men are doing to you. You're lumping them all in a category. Right. I said, can we please get away from this prejudice and this this typology and this all, you know, all whatever it is are bad. Just because one person or two people or, you know, a small subset of these people do something bad, then suddenly the whole group is bad. And 
no, I mean, can't we please get beyond this? This is crazy. And so, um, so there are a lot of men helping. I mean, men have wives and sisters and mothers and daughters that they love too. You know, it's not, it's not a man. It's like we have to work together on this. And so yeah, it's, you know, that's, that's funny that you say that. And, and, but that's another way in my life that I feel like I've been very, very fortunate and very blessed because I, I had a father, I have a father who has always told me, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. You can be anything. He's always pushed me. He's always encouraged me. And I never, I never had to grow up in an environment where I had a parent ever giving me limitations. I mean, I was always probably pushed even too much like oh you're you can be great you can do these wonderful things and so I got to grow up with a brother and a father who saw that way and now a very supportive husband who worked his rear end off to support us financially while I was going to law school yeah that's beautiful that's 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 beautiful unfortunately my parents loved me very much but they thought it was quote for my own good right that I conformed these things you know and you know you've got to get married it's for your own good it's the only way you have to supporting yourself you know no man is going to want to marry a woman who's running through the woods with a neighborhood dog i mean for heaven's sake and so they were trying to you know what's not they didn't love me it's, and it's oh, but it, it's what it's it's the big difference that that a simple shift can have in just one generation yeah. Right, a shift in consciousness. I'm huge on preserving, um, preserving stories and histories before they disappear. Like I have this fear that there's so many people that have something to say that are going to pass right. away before they can say it. And so when you started talking yeah. about all of the women who made Boston yeah. and the Olympics possible, like we we've got to preserve those stories. Yes, we do. We do because these people need credit. And uh, they said, okay, wonderful. I know you got to get back to work. We've gone way over. Okay, great. Well, take care and let's stay in touch. I love it. Yes, thank you so much, Bobby. I'll be getting with you. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Okay, thank you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a good rating and review. I'd also love for you to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Podcast. You can email me at inaskirtpodcast at gmail.com and visit my website, inaskirt.com. I would love to hear from you about any guests you think would be a good fit for the show. Once again, thank you and see you next time.